0: but it's curiosity as to where we are what we are existence the physical universe is basically playful welcome to the curious humans podcast i'm your host johnny miller good morning curious human it's almost sunrise here and i've just wrapped up a conversation with tiago forte i've probably said this before but this genuinely feels like my favorite conversation of the podcast so far I woke up at 5am to take the call because of time zone differences, and by the end, I was practically bouncing off the wall of enthusiasm. Tiago is one of the deepest thinkers of anyone that I follow online. He's a prolific writer, and as you'll hear in this conversation, he's built his business just to fuel his own relentless curiosity. And you wouldn't imagine that productivity systems and psychedelics usually pair well in a conversation, but it turns out they do, and Tiago also shares some really powerful personal stories relating to his own experiences using breathwork to process anger, uh, how he's learning to tap into his intuition, and a vision that came to him for building a school for the future in Brazil. Anyhow, I don't want to give everything away, but I think that you'll really enjoy this wide-ranging and compelling conversation with Tiago Forte. I'm here with Tiago Forte, the founder of Forte Labs and creator of the online course Building a Second Brain, which I actually completed myself last year and in, in many ways led to me launching this Curious Humans podcast. So I'm grateful to you for that. Amazing. And Thank you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's made a big impact in my life. Um, and I think I have a sense that this conversation is going to bounce around quite a lot, but I'd like to begin... Where I usually do by asking do you were you exceptionally curious as a child, and if so, could you maybe tell me a story about something that you were curious about as a kid
1: yeah, I think i was I was definitely curious um, and i had a i had a especially a dad who really um fed that uh, and in fact i'm i'm <clears throat> Getting into video now, and and my project this year is shooting a documentary with with my dad about my dad. Um, and it's really interesting, like when you interview your parents, um, the ins- like the depth of responses you get you know if you ask your dad like what were you like as a child like in a normal conversation you'd be like bugger off you know (laughs) um, with with the camera the camera could not even be rolling but now he feels like he has to give this like deep answer Mm -hmm. um and i've learned that part of the reason he's so open you know he'd always answer my why 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 questions was as a kid his dad would never respond to him his dad was like in the military, just that gruff, you know, non-articulating person. And uh, when he had us, he was like, I will give them every every response that I have.
0: <laughs> that's amazing. That's that's so awesome. And, and the, the point about um podcasts being a an access point for deeper conversations. I found that with my friends too. Like we just have normal conversations, and then as soon as there's a microphone in the room, you hit record and it's like you just go so much deeper than you would. Than you would normally. It's um, crazy. I so,
1: it's like we we all have this performance instinct, and uh, I mean, I do at least one of these interviews a week, and this is <laughs> like usually the deepest conversation of my week.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the same. The same being a host as well. I think it's it's the reason that I'm doing it really. Um, so, were there any uh, were there any books or stories that you read growing up? that kind of resonated with you? Um, and the reason that I ask is I have this kind of theory that our life purpose is in some way connected to those stories that resonated when we were younger. Are there any that come to mind for you?
1: Oh, yeah. I, I, was, a, I was a voracious reader. I was just a maniac. Um, gosh, I read so much. And it was mostly from my parents' bookcases they had you know a few rooms with a few different bookcases. And I would just, I don't know if I was bored or what, but I, I just would pick up the most random stuff. Um, and they had a, an eclectic mix of history and religion and philosophy and business, self-help. Um, it was really remarkable. But let's see, what stands out? I mean, there's my favorite book of all time, which is The Source. <clears throat> it's called The Source. It's actually a historical fiction novel. Um, and it's by this writer, this remarkable writer named James Mishner. Um, just the most amazing, he would basically like pick a country or a region and then he would spend years. I mean, each of his books took at l- least a few years. I um, mean, he, he had a whole team too, they would research it for him. He would just learn everything there was to know about this country and then go back into the, that country's history, pick like the most interesting period or the most interesting moment And tell a fictional, you know, made up story about a specific group of characters, but deeply rooted in the actual facts of history. So, like, he did this with, and often out of the way countries, like he did one, the ones that I read were Poland, um, South Africa, Alaska, um, Mexico, uh, and then this one, the source is about Palestine. And so, like when these when these countries come up, I, I have this knowledge of like Palestinian history. That like people <laughs> are like, All right, did you study this in school? But no, I just because like has a story way more than if I just read a history book. But anyway, um, to kind of answer your question, I, I think I've never thought about this before, but I think that book really did impact me in that. So the whole book is about archaeology. Basically, <clears throat> the whole book is they picked like an archaeological site in the modern day like the 70s or something and then as the archaeologists uncover you know how our archaeologists go layer by layer by layer every layer they uncover he goes back in time and there's a whole chapter on the history of that layer and so you go back like hundreds of years and then thousands of years and then like the lowest layer is like prehistoric man you know like the first the first humans um, and I think if I had to guess how that's influenced me, that's really how I see my work is like uncovering layers. Um, you know, I start with say productivity, but then if you keep going down, there's just infinite. I really truly believe it's infinite layers. You just get deeper and more profound and more subtle. You get you get to something more and more fundamental about the nature of reality. Um, so maybe that's how that that has influenced me. <laughs>
0: That's, that's amazing. <laughs> and it, yeah, in, in many ways, I feel like what you've created with building a second brain, it, it feels to me like you've almost found a way of systematizing and engineering this intense curiosity or this peeling back of the layers. And as I was, I was falling asleep last night, I was, I was thinking about this more and I, I realized that maybe on like a meta level, the businesses that you're building are almost like flywheels for kind of funding and providing a forcing function for your own intense curiosity to kind of follow it and then write about the experience and then publish it and drive traffic to your courses. And that just kind of keeps on going, um, which I think is is genius. And it's something that I'm trying to do myself. Um, but I, I remember reading one of your recent posts and you mentioned that you were kind of wrestling with a, a really challenging health condition when you were younger. Um, could you maybe share a little bit of that, like inciting incident and how it led to the need to, kind of devise your own external brain.
1: Yeah, this is this is something I'm really I'm really getting into now because because I've had this thing. It's it's essentially a completely unexplained like tension and pain in the right side of my throat. Like that just came out of nowhere one day when I was 22. So that was what 12 years ago I just started having this pain. I thought it was a flu or cold And month after month and then year after year it just started getting worse and worse and worse and worse and just in the past couple years i've I've started even mentioning, you know, like you said a health condition A health condition being willing to talk about it And just the past few months, I think i've finally come to understand what it actually is um, which has made me want to talk about it more explicitly because I think it's actually something almost universal. Um, the roots of it are something that affects almost everyone.
0: <laughs> do you want to do, do dive in?
1: Yeah. So so basically, here's my current theory, is that there's something called your vagus nerve. Mm-hmm. Your vagus nerve enervates, it goes from basically your central nervous system in your body, in your torso, up through your neck, up the back of your brainstem into your brain. Um, and it's maybe the largest nerve or at least one of the most important nerves. Um, it regulates all sorts of things arousal, um, you know. Like, I can't even remember all the functions it regulates. But the interesting thing about the vagus nerve, and I ke- I've kept encountering it. Like I read a book about breathing and they're talking about vagus nerve. And then I hear, I, I read something about, um, what's it called, ASMR, this like sound thing that people have. Vagus nerve comes up. Um, it's like a bunch of different situations. I've read about it. And I finally uh, understood that when you have trauma, when someone has some sort of trauma the vagus nerve is sort of like the um, alarm bell or like the, uh, the, the sprinkler system in your brain where it is, for some reason it is the, kind of the main thing to be affected. Um, and one way that it's affected is it shuts down. A part of it, a section of it just turns off. Um, and usually the, the part that turns off is related to the trauma right so for me and and this it's amazing because i i would meet with i've probably met with more than a dozen doctors in more than five or six countries like i would find the world specialists like in la i, I went to this voice doctor who worked with like Celine Dion and all these famous singers. Cause I was like, I want the best person in the world. We're we're looking at an anatomical chart of the throat on his, on his wall. And I'm saying, this is the problem. And I'm pointing directly at this little branch of the vagus nerve, which is the part that innervates what's called the pharynx, which is basically the very back of your throat above the larynx. So it's like above where you actually speak, but kind of towards the back of your throat. Um, and he was just like, no, there can't be anything there. No, that's not it. And he just wouldn't listen. It's amazing. Doctors, they they want to put you in one of like five boxes. And if you don't fit into one of those, oh, it's, it's not real or it's in your head or here. Just take this incredibly powerful medication that will have devastating side effects, which is what he recommended. He wanted me to take this like, the same medication that schizophrenic people take. Jesus, That was his best idea. So that, anyway, years later, I finally understand that this nerve has taken off and the way that's related, and I'll kind of wrap this up, (laughs) but um, as a kid, I felt like I didn't have a voice. There was something like, I I didn't feel like I could be heard or I didn't feel like I could speak up or people wouldn't listen. I had a lot of related hangups like that. So it makes total sense that the sort of as a defense mechanism, the very nerve that controls that entire voice producing region just turns off like a light switch. It shuts off. So that's, that's been, that's just a little, I'm going to write about this at length and it's going to be a hell of a long post because it's been so many years of trouble. So, so really this is why I developed the second brain. You know, like mm-hmm. when you have a rare illness and, and it's interesting because rare illness is something like less than one in a hundred thousand or something. So it's rare, but if you add up all the people that have any rare illness, it's like 20% of the population. Yeah, sure. So many of us have rare illnesses and and so often you have to become a researcher to really understand these rare things. You have to, it's a, it's a, part-time job managing that research and many people who have to do so end up developing very powerful organizational systems <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow um, and i think the the piece around the trauma is definitely something that i want to come back to in this conversation and for me as well like i've i a lot of my friends were doctors back home and so i kind of had this very kind of rational western mindset and recently for me um just doing my yoga training and doing meditation training has I've realized that I, I've had a lot of I guess really strong emotions stored in different parts of my body and in, in like long yin um, I'd be lying in pigeon and I'd just look down and be this like salty puddle of tears like on the yoga mat and I'm like, oh interesting. I've and it, it just clearly like releases all of this. Um, maybe it's in the fascia. I'm definitely connected to the nervous system I think there's it's a really exciting time to kind of be in that space right now. Um, but going back to just going back to the second brain, um, something that I wanted to kind of talk to you about was that I feel like a lot of listeners and myself included actually before taking the course felt like almost optimizing for that, that top layer of productivity could risk being at odds with the creative process. And But now that this, this system is in place, I, I kind of feel like the opposite. And for me, the experience of researching this, this podcast and lots of other projects I'm working on, it's almost like brainstorming with previous versions of myself, which which I love. Yeah, and totally I read some yeah and, and I read somewhere that um you described what it feels like to have a second brain as, as being like in a state of awe and it frees you from this burden of remembering things and gives you more confidence to kind of pursue your, your ambitions. So yeah I just wondered if you could speak to that experience a little and and what, what you what you mean by it.
1: <laughs> yeah I think The reason I, so the reason I wrote that post, so is, is basically everyone around me is telling me, you know, my wife, my business partner, my editor, my agent, and my marketing coach. (laughs) They're all, they're all telling me the same thing. Um, which is for building a second brain, this idea, this methodology to really reach its potential, really become something more than a very esoteric, esoteric thing for uber nerds. I need to learn to speak in a more intuitive, emotional language, Mm. right? Most people are not completely driven by their intellect. Like you know the the, the nerds that <laughs> have been my audience so far as much as i love them they're they're a tiny minority it's you know engineers and scientists and professors they've been the the ideal early adopter audience cuz they they you know they have high standards like they don't allow any bullshit you have to actually know what you're talking about but now, as I'm as I'm working on the book, really, what's driving this is working on the book of of the of the you know building a second brain course. Which a book is a crazy thing because someone has to read it with and understand it and get benefit without any contact with you. There's no coaching, there's no explanation, there's no follow up. It just has to be totally self contained. Um, so in response to so so this has been hard because I I am usually pretty driven by my intellect. So I just sat down and and I like. I like did some incense. I like meditated. I like put on the most emotional music I could. I was was, like excavating emotions. Um, And I had to just get in touch with my own feelings about it. Uh, And I just wrote that post and you'll, if you read it, it's very sort of stream of consciousness, very metaphysical, very rambling. And that's because it was just like a mind dump. Um, But yeah, I think it's just an incredible feeling to have such a powerful tool at your disposal that, that just gets every capacity you have not, and not just of your mind, you know, yes, it expands your cognitive capacity, oops, your memory, your <laughs> intellect, your processing, your insight, all those things, but also it, it also expands your awareness. It expands your intuition. It expands your, like your, um, empathy. And once you do that, it's like, it's this completely self-expanding, almost self-annihilating phenomenon that your yourself is just like a little thing in the corner of a vast room, and the least interesting thing going on and you're playing and you're creating and you're molding something and yourself, your ego just isn't even a part of it because it's so grand. It's so awesome.
0: Huh. That's, that's amazing. Um, and what, when you were talking about kind of excavating your, your emotions and putting on the, putting on the music, um, I remember reading that in Aboriginal culture, I think it's yeah, Australian Aboriginal culture, they they have this, this belief that we actually have three brains and they, they think there's a brain in the gut and the heart and the mind. And I think their word for the, the mind brain is the same as a fishing net, which I think is a really interesting analogy. Um, but at the risk of kind of confusing brains here, um, I think I'm, I'm interested in how having that external brain can kind of help to um, open up some of those kind of deeper channels and I know that you talk about how this, like, deeper knowledge is, is fully formed with a sense of certainty that no logic or proof can kind of muster up. And, and I wonder if maybe kind of a, an, a working definition of productivity or a like, different um, definition could be to maybe facilitate this process of, like, turning down the noise of our mental chatter to kind of enable that deeper knowledge and that, that intuition to, to kind of rise to the surface. So this this is kind of a big question but do you think you could just speak a bit more to your felt experience of of accessing that intuition more as someone who is kind of very clearly very intellectual um, as the result of having your your external brain
1: yeah you know what i think it is i think there's really something where you have to vacate your mind if your mind is full which is just the default state of almost everyone, almost all the time, almost everywhere these days. If it's just full, it's like there's this like static noise that just drowns out um, your own thoughts and your own intuition. You know, a lot of that noise is coming from the outside. It's social media and it's emails and it's the other thing, you know, all the stuff you you absorb, but actually much more so it comes from the inside. And you realize this when you meditate is like, you don't need any external input to have a deafening cacophony in your head. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of the flaw in this, like deep in the deep work philosophy. It's like, oh yeah, if you just sequester yourself out in a cabin in the woods somewhere, then you'll have peace. No, you won't. <laughs> yeah. (laughs) that that just opens the door for your inner monkey to go insane so you have have to vacate your mind and and meditation is one way of doing that The, the issue then is you know you still need even after you vacated your mind you still need to create things and produce things and there's still content that's relevant right so there's this paradox how do you still work with content by which i mean ideas and insights and examples and metaphors and the stories you're telling and interviews you're doing and blog posts you're writing all these things while your mind is vacated that sounds like a paradox right but the way you do it is you just store all that stuff in a different mind
0: <laughs> mm. yeah yeah this is okay this is really interesting um I I feel like this, in many ways this has been kind of a central question of my life for the last couple of years, and I've I've done a couple of and meditation retreats, and I've been kind of writing poetry recently, and uh, here in Bali I've been teaching breathwork exercises to kind of very distracted uh, digital nomads, and I feel like the the common thread is maybe this. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if this this analogy will resonate, but it's almost like we're we're tuning up the instruments of our, of our human cells so that like this like music can kind of flow through us. And, and maybe when our brain is stored elsewhere, it gives us more space to kind of be the conductor for that music and just kind of let it, let it flow. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd love to just maybe dive in a bit more to how meditation and breathwork have, have impacted you both personally and kind of creatively. And you also mentioned on Twitter that you'd had a, a kind of powerful breathwork experience and i wondered if you'd be open to, to sharing that as well.
1: Definitely, yeah. I mean, the, the experience was a, a course I did about a month ago. Um, it's a week long course in the in the Northern Sierras in California uh, that was just an extremely profound experience. Basically, um, the actual exercise was anger work. So the goal was to get in touch with your anger, mm. and it was so interesting because it, it was it's like. That's so sort of the opposite of most spiritual endeavors, which is all about being placid and calm and unattached, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but and so they explained this exercise. Basically, it was like using, getting, you, you put on gloves and had a tennis racket and just wailed on things, not things. He wailed on uh, futons that were sort of specially designed for this, so it was quite safe, quite quite, you know, in control, but really it was to let all that anger out. And it was crazy because when they explained the exercise, I actually raised my hand and I said, but I don't, I don't have any anger. I don't, I feel, I feel nothing. And they were like, exactly. (laughs) 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 Exactly. Um, and so we started with breathing exercises where we, we lay down on a, on a mat, um, like a yoga mat and our knees are up kind of like in a birthing, like giving birth position, uh, hands kind of on our sides, palms up and we're doing, um, deep inhales and like stretching the, the lungs, the chest and the stomach as much as possible. And then exhaling like without any control, which is actually surprisingly hard to do. You know, like when you breathe out, you go, Oh, which is kind of control to actually completely just let it collapse is very kind of hard. But anyway, I'm doing this and I start to feel it. I'm doing this, this, this breathing, maybe not even 10 minutes. And this, it felt like, Oh my gosh, like this, like a little tendril of smoke. That's what it felt like. Like something was coming up from the, like just not even heat, but just like a little bit of sign of something. And, um, and then I started to be able to feel it. And I, I felt the this like incredible after a few minutes, it was this like white hot volcanic rage, but it was sort of blocked underneath this, like this wall. Um, and later through, there was sort of, sort of some post-processing and coaching and different things. I, I really was taken back to being a kid where if I got angry, my dad would get 10 times as angry back. Right. And as a kid, your parent actually getting like full out angry is like absolutely terrifying. It's like your survival is at stake. Um, and I, and I can actually remember very intentionally trying to find ways to swallow the anger, swallow the anger, swallow the anger, which by the way, then I have my throat thing, right? I'm, there's something related there. Um, and so I just get this tennis racket and, and I just didn't recognize myself. The, the amount of anger that I had to let out was absolutely, um, astonishing Mm -hmm. That was astonishing. And then part of the exercise is like not collapsing because many people, they'll let out some anger, but then they'll sort of collapse like physically and mentally. Um, But the whole thing, and this comes from a book called The Body Keeps the Score. This is all based on the work of um, Bessel van der Kolk, who's this guy at Harvard who has uh, worked in trauma centers for decades. It's all very well-researched, very well-supported. But the whole thing is to act out the situation where you were traumatized, but to change the story, right? Mm-hmm. So if you collapsed back then, you acted out again, you let out the anger, but then this time, they would have you like stand up like in a gladiator pose, like with your arms <laughs> out, and then just like declare victory, almost just like reprogram your physical, your, like your nervous system to mm-hmm. interpret that scenario as one of victory, not defeat. Mm-hmm. And, and the oh man, the high I felt after that is like nothing I've ever experienced. I, I really realized that my whole life keeping that anger down has had really all sorts of consequences—consequences consequences in relationships, in business, in my um, in my body, in my health. Like any any emotion that you repress wreaks havoc on your life. There's no emotion that just is, you know. Um, that you can just repress and, and doesn't have a consequence. Every emotion has a purpose. And so eventually, I think a spiritual growth, a lot of it is not just like having better emotions, which I sort of got that impression from meditation before. I don't know if, if that was just my interpretation, but this, this work was more about actually manifesting every single one of the emotions. We did grief work, mm-hmm. we did fear work, we did even some stuff around guilt and shame. It was amazing. <laughs> um,
0: wow that's that's really powerful and I am um, I suppose I've been on this have been on a similar journey myself and I love this there's a quote by Rumi I think and he says the cure for the pain is is in the pain and it's like this idea that any emotion whether it's anger or guilt or shame if you allow yourself to feel it fully that it then kind of melts into into bliss or, or oneness and, and, wholeness. and this has, been my, this has been my experience with, with grief as well. Like I'm, I'm actually going to be giving a TEDx talk in a couple of weeks about this kind of, the, the gifts of grief. And for me, um, I would kind of go swimming in the freezing cold ocean and I'd be like screaming and wading out into the, into the sea. And it was almost like that anger was this kind of, um, it just created all of this energy in my body that I then had to learn to surrender into. And I think that's the piece that a lot of us, we're taught to kind of to fight and to resist a lot of the time and so when these difficult emotions arise we don't really have the, the, the kind of courageous curiosity to firstly look at them and acknowledge them and maybe give give them a big hug and then to actually surrender into them and to accept them as part of ourselves and i suppose that's what all of this all of the shadow work is is really about integrating those repressed part of ourselves that maybe served the purpose when we were you know eight years old and That didn't want to piss off our our dads, but it's like now it's no longer serving us and it. Can lead to health conditions, like you, like you said. So yeah, this stuff is is so interesting. Um, And uh, what what excites me at the moment, and particularly being being here in Bali, actually, is it feels like we're we're almost like democratizing these inner tools for accessing these different states of consciousness and and doing shadow work and basically depending on what the moment requires. And so so to give a practical example, um. Before we jumped on this call, I did a few rounds of like Kapalabhati, like fire breath, uh, just to kind of give myself some energy and, and wake up my nervous system. Um, so I'm curious if this like, uh, does that resonate first of all, and what excites you most about the the potential for these kind of inner technologies that we're just discovering?
1: Yeah, I think <clears throat> I think this this is, this stuff is so huge. It's you know it's sort of like. And Bessel van der Kolk, ta- I just finished his book, and he talks about this: like, the awareness of trauma in society pr- goes in waves. Um, and he identified there's, there were different backlash. Like basically people start to become aware of trauma and it, be, it opens up more and more. It's kind of like psychedelics. Like people become more and more aware of it, but then something happens or people get scared or the media does you know something. And then it, there's a backlash and it gets repressed on society again. And he's identified like three or f- I think three of them in the 20th century. Um, but, and he thinks now that we're on an upswing, we're, we're going towards awareness, which I agree. And, you know, it's like the underlying fabric of society. You know, everything from obesity, you know, and nutrition. Why do people eat stuff that doesn't taste good, isn't good for them, and gives them terrible conditions? To, to addiction, to drugs and alcohol, you know, why, why do people feel this need to not feel? What is so terrible about what's happening inside that they can't feel? To, um, to abuse, sexual abuse domestic abuse, um, and all the way to, you know, among those is relatively unimportant, but productivity and, and workplace stuff. <clears throat> it was remarkable to me reading this book, how every so kind of symptom that people come to me with, you know, I want to take your course or do your coaching or whatever it is for this thing is a symptom of trauma. Like for example, ADHD. All the the collection of symptoms that we call ADHD, and this is actually coming out more and more now. Like um, uh, Matej Gabors uh, interview with Tim Ferriss talked about this. Um, a kid has has a situation they they can't they can't face. They dissociate, right? And then that dissociation becomes a mental habit, and it keeps going and shows up as ADHD. But what this book talks about is the opposite is also true. That hyperfocus can be a symptom of trauma. And I think this is the direction I went. I've always been able to just really zero in on something. And I've realized um, that that is its own form of dissociation. Like when I usually, usually the thing that has me wanna like get into, especially a very complex or abstract piece of writing is like something in my life or in the business is going some way I don't want it to go and I can't face it. And I just wanna escape from myself. And so writing is like my drug. And I actually exhibit many of the symptoms of addiction I exhibit, that people exhibit towards substances. I exhibit towards writing.
0: Mm. Wow. Yeah, that's that's so, that's so true. And I think um, I notice in, in myself and in, in friends, I think a lot of people who start businesses as well and have these kind of ambitious uh, goals to like whether it's an impact business or to trying to save the world in some way often it comes from a place of lack or potentially trying to overcompensate from something in, in their childhood and it's yeah it's it's almost like again with the layers if you kind of keep peeling back these layers at the bottom there probably is some kind of root experience or or even like i've, I've been reading about ancestral traumas and epigenetics and how we kind of carry things which you know didn't even happen in our lifetimes it's it's really, really interesting. Um, so I'm curious about how you mentioned that when you begun this kind of meditation journey, you didn't really get the sense that it was f- to be used for kind of exploring some of this this shadow work or trauma release. And so um, I guess I'm wondering if there were any experiences that arose during your meditation practice that caused you to change your mind on that, or uh, how, how would you say your relationship to meditation has Chinese ideas?
1: I think I, I've never really gone, well, it depends how you, how you define it, but I've never learned that much about meditation. You know, I, I, I read this book kind of, it's like an introduction to meditation in like 2012, I think um when i first arrived in san francisco you know that's what you do when you go to san francisco you get into weird stuff and uh about a year later i did a, my first vipassana retreat which was very eye opening very cool um and then i did a couple years later i did a second retreat um but this the, the whole this whole period i've essentially only known vipassana and done vipassana maybe you know Ten to twenty minutes most days of the week. Not super hyper religious about it, but pretty actually very consistent over the years. Um, so I can't say I know that much, but I do like I love experimenting with different modalities. I love I just love like how every one of these modalities shines a different kind of light on a different kind of blind spot. And gives you a, some kind of new experience of joy, of happiness, of freedom, of flexibility, of ease, something. And then also, and this is the most incredible thing, is it makes you more effective. I'm just constantly amazed how like you know everything in my life, my 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 work, my business, my writing, my relationships is a reflection of me. You know, like, like I, I'm the one that creates my reality. So if I have a blind spot, then that blind spot shows up in my writing and it also shows up in my business and it also shows up in my family, you know? And then when I reveal a blind spot, usually through some experience of of this kind, um, I'm just able to act with more power and be more effective in that area that is now revealed to me.
0: Yeah, it's like increasing that light of self-awareness. Just um, gives us more more access to ourselves, and continuing down this thread of of, of exploring modalities and accessing deeper wisdom. Um, I know that you mentioned you mentioned psychedelics earlier, and I I've had some experiences myself that have been very profound, and I feel like they've almost flipped my metaphysical beliefs of the world on their head, and, and in some ways actually set me kind of on this meditation path. I'm trying to kind of access some of those states under my own steam. Um, so, I guess I'd love to. Uh, I'd, I'd love to ask you about. You wrote about a specific moment when you were cramped on the back seat of a plane, and a, and a vision came to you. Um, and I wondered if you could share a little bit more of, of what that experience was like to feel that to feel that download, and a bit about the the vision that kind of came through.
1: Yeah this is this kind of relates to this a previous question you answered that we didn't really get to which is like <clears throat> how does how does the kind of knowledge that we collect in software relate to stuff like intuition right and i think it is related in that once you offload facts and details and statistics and you know the explicit concrete legible stuff, there is just this, this empty space in your brain for things to arise and arise. They do. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And and this, this has been amazing for me to discover because I'm, I'm not naturally, I think that intuitive, at least not compared to some other people in my life, but, um, that's been the amazing discovery is that things arrive fully formed you know things like your purpose in life or your mission in life or really like your big goals or your identity or your truth or your voice or these kind of things that you you don't arrive at them analytically you don't like make a list of pros and cons and then whittle it down and then like construct a very logical structure they just arrive they just descend on you And it's super mysterious. I mean, you can probably make up, you know, various scientific reasons for how that happens. You know, like it's in some latent layer of your memory, um, which are just as valid too, but it is super mysterious. And that story, it was just so crazy because, you know, I I first noticed it a few months before when I was in Brazil and I was in a taxi in Rio going along the, um, there's like a coastal road from the old house where i used to live when i when i lived there which i had just visited and i was headed back to the the main part of town and i was just talking to i think i was with my sister in the in the in the car and i said something like i i want to be the bridge between the united states and brazil i just said that casually and it was like <laughs> My body just like engaged in all of these different ways. All these like modules came online. I I was just moved to tears, out of wow. out of nowhere from something that I had said.
0: <laughs> wow.
1: And I was just like, what What is this? You know, I I, I hardly had a, an idea that that was there. Um, and so I just kind of you know had it in the back of my mind, and then some months later. Uh, which is what I read about in this story. I I was at Yale university and kind of being very moved by like the, the the venerable old, you know, scholarship and learning that happened there. Um, And then on the plane ride back home to California, I read Michael Pollan's how to change your mind. And my, the the best, I mean, as far as I know, I was, I, I felt very psychedelic, like, the lights were very, uh, vibrant and time seemed to be moving very slow and all these things as I'm in the plane, even though I didn't take anything. And I I think it was something like a contact high just from reading about it. I was reading about his psychedelic experiences and having a psychedelic experience. Very weird. Um, and then I just, in that state started journaling and all this stuff started coming out. Like all this stuff, like just in great detail with no hesitation, no pause and no thinking. It was like, uh, what I really want is to start a school, a physical in-person school in Brazil, in the south of Brazil, in the mountains, which is where I used to live with my family. Uh, I could picture the location, I could picture how the classrooms were laid out, I could picture, um, I just, not even picture, I just knew what the curriculum would be, which would be all these personal growth modalities. Like we wouldn't teach really history or science or things, we would teach like productivity, effectiveness, self-awareness, emotional intelligence, communication, leadership, all these things. Basically, the, the bridge is really from all these modalities that are not exclusive to the U.S., but are rarefied, you know, to, to, to be part of these things I've been part of, it's really just like a few large cities in the U S where really esoteric, unusual kinds of practices are allowed to exist, you know, um, and bring those to the world, but specifically to Brazil, which is, is so in need of them. Um, And the other way, too, I think so much of what's happening in the U.S. right now, Brazilian culture and society actually has the answer to a lot of that. Latino culture has this incredible depth and warmth. I mean, this is why I live in Mexico now. It's like when you live in Latin America and and you see what what true community looks like and how deep even casual uh, interactions on the street can be. And then you go in the U.S. and you see how much that's lacking. It's absolutely heartbreaking. It's hard. There's something broken, I think, in, in US society. Um, I mean, we can, we, it's probably a separate conversation, but yeah, that's just something that emerged from this weird psychedelic process, which was to start a school. And Lauren and I, my, my wife, we just got married in April. We're just holding that. You know, my, my attitude is like, okay, hey, universe, if you want me to do that, you're going to have to make, make it really easy. <laughs> 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 Honestly, you know, you're going to have to make it easy. You're going to have to make me a good offer. You're going to have to open the way through the jungle. Because if you don't, I have no idea how this could possibly come about. It's it's That's what's so cool. It's like, it's so clearly outside of my own abilities. Where I can't even tell that what the first step would be. That I can just relax and say, universe, if this is what you want for me. And this is so weird because I'm an atheist. And I don't really think there's a god, and yet this stuff is happening. It's I don't know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's it's so so interesting, and I um, this is a weirdly parallel experience. But I, um, I I feel like when you let go of the of the need or, or the the sense that you know how to get from A to B, um, you almost open up the doors to all of this. Invisible help and all of these possibilities that were, that you were previously completely unaware of. And, and for, for me, this, this is weird, I, I almost feel like this idea of, um, I, I sent this tweet a couple of months back saying, I think it would be fun to crowdsource a how to human user manual for the 21st century. And I listed some things that are really similar to the kind of things that you just mentioned that should be on this curriculum for kind of future Brazilian leaders um like how to breathe how to meditate how to learn how to unlearn all of these all of these things but i'm to me it also feels like a very big project and i'm kind of in this place of like this feels very exciting but i'm not yet sure how to how like what the next step is so i'm just trying to listen and trying to be open to uh just to pay attention to any kind of signs or nudges and like holding that lightly and without needing to know exactly how it's going to come to fruition or, or if it will We've not been too attached to it. Um, which is hard because I think we all grow up like needing to know and we get rewarded for giving the correct answers to questions in school. And and we get we 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 feel like we look stupid when we don't know the answer to a question. Um which is a big part of the motivation for this podcast. I'm like trying to nudge humans to take the curiosity more seriously and to not reach for those easy answers. So I think yeah. <laughs>
1: you're onto something and it's it's something a lot of people are are realizing too it's like the con, the subject matter content is no longer what education is about you, you can look up any answer at any time on any device so what's left is the yeah these like meta skills these interpersonal skills these self awareness skills and gosh our education system is just not designed to deliver those <laughs>
0: Yeah, and it's, it's um, so uh, I, I interviewed this, this 12-year-old girl in Bali for a previous episode and it just blew my mind how smart and how driven and how curious she was. And I think that I'm realising that we all have that innate curiosity in us, but it's the, it's the conditioning and it's the layers that, all the gunk that kind of gets on top and just blocks out that innate curiosity. So maybe the role of teachers is just to kind of to midwife or to, to hold a space for this natural curiosity to just kind of express itself and let kids learn for themselves because they, they probably figure out a lot of this stuff on their own. Um, exactly. But I, just before we... Okay. So just before we wrap up, um, what's the best place for listeners to find you, learn more about Building a Second Brain and the projects that you're, that you're working on? Where should, they, where should they go
1: to? Yeah. So they can go to buildingasecondbrain.com, which is the everything you would ever want to know about that course. Um, If they want to know about my broader work, Fortelabs.co is my website. That's F-O-R-T-E-L-A-B-S.co, not dot com. And that has links to the the online courses, of course. And we have other ones too. Um, I also have some eBooks, which there's a link to. Uh, My blog, which is very active, as you know. Um, And a few other things like workshops and speaking. But yeah, I'd love to hear from your listeners what they... What they got out of this pretty atypical conversation when it comes to productivity.
0: <laughs> <laughs> also, and it's Forte Labs on Twitter, right? If they want to get in touch on yep.
1: Twitter. That's, that's probably the, the, the place I'm most active is Twitter. And my handle is at Forte Labs. That's right.
0: OK, awesome. Um, so there's a, there's a question that I like to wrap up these conversations with. And it's, it's borrowed from a real K line that I love. And it's, it's basically, Uh, to paraphrase it, try to love the questions themselves and live them now. And perhaps you'll gradually, without noticing it, live your way into the answer. So with that in mind, what is the question that you feel like you're living yourself right now? And what question might you leave our listeners with?
1: Mm, Okay. I think the question would be... (laughs) I think it would be, what would you do if your freedom and pleasure were essential to the freedom and pleasure of the world?
0: Wow. Mm. Wow, thank you. Um, Thank you so much for taking the time for this conversation, and we will end the show with that. Okay. Okay. This episode's listener question is Tiago's which is what would you do if your freedom and pleasure were essential to the freedom and pleasure of the world and I'd love to hear your responses on Twitter you can you can tag me Johnny Miller with the I as a one and Tiago is at Forte Labs. Um, or feel free to send, send me an email as well. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life.